Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today we bring you part one of our live event, How to Win Every Argument, with renowned interviewer and debater Mehdi Hassan. In his new book, Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading and Public Speaking, Hassan reveals his tips and techniques for mastering the art of persuasion. From Demosthenes to Elizabeth Warren, he explores the importance of arguing throughout history and explains how we can all improve our communication skills. Part two and three of this event are available ad-free for subscribers now. And for our listeners who don't subscribe, don't worry, part two will be available in our next episode. We also have a special bonus episode for our subscribers to enjoy from our series Bright Sparks, where we'll be hearing from Mehdi Hassan on the creative ideas that make him tick. This event originally took place at Conway Hall on the 23rd of March, 2023. Over to our host, columnist, author and broadcaster, Jonathan Friedland. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. As you all know, Intelligence Squared is the home of debate, the classic debate for and against format. So you can imagine when an email arrived in my inbox and said, Intelligence Squared, event with Mehdi Hassan. My reaction was, no way. There's no way I'm going anywhere near that. Thank you very much. But I'm lucky to, enough to tell you that I'm not having to debate Mehdi Hassan because that is a losing ticket, believe me. Uh, instead, I'm just my, it's my great privilege tonight to be in conversation with Mehdi. He, uh, he and I have known each other a long time. We're going to do that uh, up here for a bit, about 45 minutes or so, and then we're going to open it up to uh, questions and perhaps something more from all of you, anyone who thinks that they fancy their chances taking on Mehdi Hassan in debate, tonight could be your moment. As I said, I'm not going anywhere near that, um, but you may want to. So our guest this evening is an award-winning journalist and broadcaster, host of The Mehdi Hassan Show, which airs on both MSNBC and NBC's streaming network, Peacock. 
His new book is Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading and Public Speaking. It's just out. You cannot move for interviews with media and publicity, uh, and it has already paid off. As you heard, it's in the top 10. We will, as I say, open up for you to have uh, your chance to put a question to Mehdi, or if you're feeling brave, to take him on in debate. This whole debate thing with you, Mehdi, I mean, are you were, and were you one of those people, because they do exist at school, those kids who are sort of the debate champ, who aged 9 or 10 or 13 or 14 is in the school debating society and honing those skills. When other kids were playing football in the playground, you were there in doing <laughs> debate prep. Is that you? Well, first of all, thank you, Johnny, for doing this event and uh, not deleting the email in your inbox when it came in. Uh, thank you all for coming out tonight. This is my uh, sixth public event uh, in my second country. I did four in the US, and I've, this is my second one in the UK. But I can honestly say this is the one I've been looking forward to. This is London. This is my hometown. It's great to see you all. Thank you so much. And. For those of you who bought the book and read the book, you'll know that I say that in every city I go to. It's a good way of connecting with the audience from the very beginning. I appreciate all of you turning out tonight. Uh, I didn't know, Johnny, you had so many fans, so thank you for bringing out the big crowd. I appreciate it. Uh, to answer your question, no, I wasn't that person, actually. I didn't really do competitive debating. Right. And even today, I'm not that big a fan of competitive debating. My daughter does high school debate in America, right. which is a big thing. I find it just rule-bound and kind of artificial. Mm. And I wrote the book because I wanted to to talk about the real world and the real life debates. My debates in school were of the unorthodox variety. They were the debates that involved me shouting out the answers to questions, arguing with teachers, and then spending much of the time in the hallway uh, with my parents receiving phone calls from various teachers saying, yes, he knows the answer, but he needs to let other people speak. <laughs> so that was my, ex my experience of debate was not a good one in school. And then I get to university, and even at university, I talk about it in the book, I did Oxford Union debating, the most famous debate in the new world. I was very lucky, privileged to have that opportunity. But even there, I didn't do competitive debating. I did the exhibition debating, the Thursday night with politicians, with Boris Johnson and, and Benazir Bhutto and the like. So it was always more unorthodox. Always, I've always been more interested in the real world application. Yeah, what did you tackle Boris Johnson on? Uh, the uh, debate at the time, Oxford Union every year does an annual debate, this house has no confidence in Her Majesty's government. And uh, at the time, Labour was in power and I was defending, I was defending Tony Blair, how times change. Um, I was defending the Blair government, uh, to be fair, this was 1998 or something, right. way pre-Iraq, um, and Boris Johnson was there on behalf of Spectator and on behalf of the Conservatives. And I spent the night mocking him. Uh, recently, a Dutch documentary crew, a little clip emerged recently of a thinner, weird-sounding me uh, mocking Boris. Um, and I say in the clip, he makes you laugh, but there's no substance. So I was prophetic there yeah, yeah, in my description good. of Boris Johnson. And then afterwards, I shamelessly went and asked him for an internship at The Spectator, which he weirdly gave to me. So it was a very weird experience. So it worked out for you. It's good that you're outing that about yourself rather than waiting for, waiting for, them for the Daily Mail yeah. or someone similar to do that. So this book, and you say the real-world application, when I was reading it, and it's absolutely entertaining and powerfully argued, as you would expect, and very practical in its advice, it really does tell people how to win arguments. Except I was thinking, this is great if you're a politician. This is fantastic if you are somebody who hosts a regular show on cable news. But ordinary, regular people, do they really need this? How is this book relevant for them? So 
I did start out thinking about kind of politicians, media. You know, we've talked about this for a long time, about some of the deficiencies in our media. I've been quite openly critical of the British media, the American media, especially interviews in America. Mm. Uh, I don't believe they're tough enough, combative enough. Uh, one of the things I've done in the US is try and bring my own style and make it more mainstream, more acceptable, uh, and you know, getting there little by little. So there is a lot of that in there for people in our industry and for politicians. And uh, a congressman named Ro Khanna recently tweeted, I plan to buy the book and read it before I go on his show. So maybe I've uh, shot myself in the foot. <laughs> but no, when I started writing it, I realized this is for everyone. When I started doing the research behind kind of styles of argument, looking at the science, there's a lot of science in the book, even though I'm not a science journalist or a scientist, but like some of the things we take for granted, how much actual documented evidence there is for it. And then you realize, actually, no, this is applicable to a general crowd. And I didn't realize I would end up writing such a kind of audience. And I say, I've said in interviews, it's, it's, for, it's for the lawyer in the courtroom, yes, with the 12 jurors. Uh, yes, it's for the businessman in the boardroom trying to seal the deal, but it's anyone in school who has to speak in front of a classroom. It's someone sitting around the dinner table with their, you know, in America, it's your mad uncle at Thanksgiving. Uh, it's that, uh, it's, it's, it's the, the, not every technique in here is for every argument. People ask me questions, when should you do this, when should you do that? Context matters, I say in the book. Everything is about context. Who is your audience? Who are you trying to convince? Is it a debate or is it an informal conversation? What are you trying to achieve when you stand up in front of a room of people? Are you trying to rhetorically destroy the other person in YouTube fashion? Or are you trying to persuade... Because that may not be so good at a family dinner, I'm thinking. I mean, you might want to destroy a crazy <laughs> MAGA uncle who wants to build a wall. I don't know how your family dinners are. <laughs> but um, I've had some lively family dinners, as some people here will testify. Um, the, but, you know, it, w there's a difference between, as you say, trying to destroy one person in a debate on stage, or just sitting down with someone you care about and trying to change their mind one-on-one. -on -one. The book tries to take you through different scenarios. It's not all... I know the title is Win Every argument, but it's not all rhetorical destruction. I do have a whole chapter in there about the importance of empathy, yep. about putting your feet in the shoes of others, listening empathetically to where someone's coming from. And when I said I was writing a chapter on listening, my wife turned to me and she laughed. She just <laughs> laughed. And then there was a long pause and she said, seriously, you're writing a chapter on listening. You're the worst listener. <laughs> I said, that's why I have to write this chapter. Because I, you know, I struggle with these things too. I'm not a perfect practitioner of everything in the book, but I'm trying to put together a different skill set. But yes, I believe it's across the board. You go for a job interview, I hope this book will help you. You're trying to negotiate a pay rise, I hope this book will help you. You're trying to convince your friend in the playground that Liverpool is a better team than Chelsea or Man United, I hope this book will help you. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV.
we should dive in straight away, because as I said, it's very, very practical. Uh, people are often told in arguments to play the ball, not the player, um, and to avoid ad hominem, personal attacks. And you give contradictory advice to that. You say you should play the ball and the player. Um, we're going to see an example of that in a moment, but just give us, an, just explain why you think it's legitimate to have a go at the person you're yeah. arguing with rather than just their argument. So again, context matters. I'm not saying do it across the board willy-nilly wherever you are, just go attack someone. That's not a wise move. As I say, if you're trying to convince someone one-on-one -on -one in private who you care about, it makes no sense to attack them. That just makes them defensive. But as I say at the start of the book, sometimes your argument, we get so obsessed with what am I going to say to that person that we forget that that person might not be the important person. Hmm. It might be the audience out there that you're trying to appeal to. And in that case, bringing down the credibility, what Aristotle called the ethos of that person, which is a key part of argument, the appeal to your own personal credibility. Bringing theirs down and yours up is an obvious thing to do. It's a no-brainer mm -hmm. in an argument where the audience wants to know who to trust, who to believe, who to rely on. So it depends, again, on the context of where you are before you kind of unleash. You know, I, I, had John, I had John Bolton on my show a while back, and I knew, we talked about Iraq, I wasn't going to change John Bolton's mind on Iraq. That would be mad. But what I wanted to do was have the audience at home see that his arguments were poor and that he's being held to account for the first time. So in that case, you can address the person. And what I say in the book is there's three types of ad hominem attacks. One is the abusive ad hominem, what Donald Trump takes to an extreme, the name calling. You're ugly, as he says. I'm not saying to do that. Don't go call people names. But for example, calling somebody a liar, that's seen as off limits in our House of Commons. You can't say it. It's right. unparliamentary language. I'm saying if somebody has a history of lying and you're on a public platform with them, it is your obligation to tell the crowd, don't trust that person. They have a history of dishonesty. They have a history of deception. Now, that's technically an ad hominem attack. It's not relevant to the argument, but it is relevant to how much scrutiny and trust the audience should put in that person. So I say it's relevant. The circumstantial ad hominem, the conflict of interest. Um, I don't believe in climate change, says the scientist who is funded by the fossil fuel lobby. Wouldn't you want to reveal to the crowd that the dude who just told you that climate change isn't real is ExxonMobil's guy? That is a relevant point to make. Now, again, you could say that's got nothing to do with the science around climate change, but it, is, it does deserve greater scrutiny. And the third one I talk about is the tu quo quo, uh, you too, the hypocrisy argument, which is one I deploy a lot with politicians as an interviewer. Politician A comes on the show and says, do this, and you say, but you don't do it. Uh, classic example, Republicans who say, ban all abortions while they secretly pay a mistress to have an abortion. Yeah. Now, you could say, technically, that is irrelevant to the substance of the argument over abortion, whether the fetus has a right to life, whether the fetus feels fed, is irrelevant, right? That's the substance, I agree. But it is relevant in an argument to be able to say to someone, if you can't adhere to the principles you claim to stand for, what does that say about your principles? So what I say in this situation is, Judge the moment, judge the relevance. If you're talking about COVID with a doctor and the doctor is saying, trust me, you don't need a vaccine, but that doctor has been discredited in multiple studies, all their predictions have been wrong, then of course you should point that out. If the, if the person you're up against is making a pro-hominem argument, trust me, I'm a doctor, trust me, I'm a general, trust me, I'm an economist, it is your obligation as someone interviewing them, debating them, uh, you know, engaging with them to say, well, how's your record on this stuff? It's pretty bad. And people get upset on my show when I bring up their record, but, you know, that's life. And to know the record is crucial. And one yes. of your big uh, points all the way through the book is you have to do your homework, you have to be prepared. Uh, bearing both of those things in mind, Mehdi's insistence on doing 
the homework and on um, the legitimacy sometimes of taking down the credibility of uh, uh, an interlocutor by reminding them of their record. I want you to have a look at this clip from an Intelligence Squared debate, in fact, about Saudi Arabia and its human rights record. This was uh, Mehdi Hassan tangling with Mamoun Fandi, who's a pro-Saudi writer and commentator. Let me just make one very quick point to Mamoun. Mamoun, Mamoun, I've got to say this. You talk about Islam and Maududi and Khutub. Uh, the Christian Science Monitor published a piece in the 1990s saying that Egypt shouldn't bow down to Saudi-style Islam. As a student, I saw fundamentalist students go to Saudi Arabia, come back and distribute books. Saudi-style fundamentalism unnerves Egyptians. Saudi influence must be curbed. The author of that piece was one Mamoun Fandi. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. Well done. Well, well done. That's true. That's, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still to my point. I'm still to my point that uh, you know, influencing young and so on through money and other things is is really should be curbed. However, I have to remind you that well, there you are facts. shouldn't bow to a Saudi-style Islam. Under Mubarak, it did. Under Mubarak, it did. Ladies and gentlemen, was questions weak. which matter. <laughs> I mean, in a case like that, um, he had nowhere left to go after that. Once you, I mean, there's no, there's no more exhilarating line to deploy in an argument, debate, or interview than your words, Mamoun, your mm. words. And people get very upset. I've noticed this. I've had guests get very upset with me during interviews, after interviews. Um, I believe one of my former producers, Al Jazeera English, is here tonight, whose job was to walk guests out of the studio. <laughs> after I'd finished an interview with them. So I have props to Ryan Coles, who I believe is here tonight, uh, who, had to, who had that unenviable task, because people get very annoyed and say, that's a gotcha question. You hear that a lot, Jonathan, mm. in, our, in our line of work. It's a mm. gotcha question. And I, again, I push back against that. Nothing wrong with a gotcha question. Yes, I'm trying to get you. I'm trying to hold you to account. Yeah. And they're your words. If you have a problem with your words, maybe you shouldn't have said them. But the point, point I was going to go on to make was the, that was six or seven clicks deep yes. on Google. You say in the book that people too often go for the first page of Google. Yes, and they give up. But you... It took me ages to find that quote. Yeah, yeah. I, I, dug, I dug deep to find this guy had a backlog of dozens of articles and books going back 20 years. But when you find that gold moment, or when a researcher of mine offers on a show finds it, it's one, of those, it's one of those eureka moments. And it happened with Eric Prince in a famous clip as well, where we found a press release showing that he was working in Xinjiang province. And it was a great moment when we just displayed that And it was air. partly because the researcher, I think, had Googled for the letters PDF, which actually expanded the search, which is yes. a very, very good tip, and one I have already stolen myself. You describe in the book the, the thing of conceding a point the other yes. person has made. And you say it's a judo move, yeah. right? And it struck me reading it that, okay, but shouldn't you sometimes concede a point because the other person might actually be right? Yes. And I'm thinking of your wife's observation that you're not such a great listener. And I'm thinking, well, maybe that's part of the problem. Yep. If you think acknowledging the other person might be right is a judo move, in other words, yep. another way to actually get them down on the floor and on the mat rather than a genuine concession. But it could be both, Jonathan. Well, what I was going to just come on to was to say, is there perhaps a difference between winning every argument, which is yep. what your, your book is about, and actually getting to the truth uh, uh, of an issue and learning what's right. And do you think, perhaps professionally, because you're so good at it, have you put sort of winning ahead of learning? 
It's a great question, and it's one of the ones that goes to the core of the book and the title. The title was very provocative. Mm. When I first put the cover up on social media, that was the response from kind of 20% of people. It was like, but why would you want to win every argument? You shouldn't. You should want to learn. And I get that, and I understand that, and I think there is huge value in finding common ground and learning new things and negotiating a middle ground. To the people who want to do that, I say buy someone else's books. <laughs> I am unashamedly saying that there are hundreds of books out there on negotiation and compromise and persuasion. This is not that book. This is a book that is going to teach you unashamedly, unapologetically how to win. And in my defense, I would say this. Look, there are situations where you might want to lose. But I think we downplay how many situations where you have to win. People treat argument like it's a choice. I was doing a Today program interview this morning, and, and Michelle Hussein made the point. She said, you know, I, I wonder, do we, should we want to win these arguments in a polarized time? Don't some people want to stay away from it? And it's a great question, but we actually live in a world where right now it's very hard to avoid some arguments. Yeah. You shouldn't want to avoid some arguments. Some arguments you have to win. And the examples I give of that, for example, if you are a prosecutor in court you trying to, to convict a murderer, you don't want to meet that murderer halfway and kind of hit, you know, you want to make sure the 12 jurors put this guy who you believe is a threat to society behind bars. If you're going for a job interview, which I consider a form of argument, you're making the case for yourself, you're trying to sell yourself, you might think to yourself, you know what, if I listen to these guys, maybe I'll realize that I'm not the best person for this job. <laughs> maybe the guy behind me should get the job. No, of course not. You're going to get the job. You're going to use whatever tools that I give you to get that job because you need that job. You need the income. Your family needs it, et cetera, et cetera. So I take your point. I'm not disputing the fact that in some areas you want to do that. I'm just saying that's not what my book's about, yeah. and I'm not apologizing for that. But just on the concession point, I do believe you can do both. Mm. I do believe that you can make a strategic concession. What the Greek school synchoresis where it's talking about, where you say your, your back's against the wall, the other person's made a great point, too often we double down. We say, no, I will not concede. I say in the book, concede. Just say, great, I, you got me. I didn't, I didn't think of that point. But hold on, did you think of this point? Mm. Can I come back with a stronger point? Which is a very cynical and self-serving move. It's a strategic move. But I don't see why it's either or. While doing that, it doesn't have to be a dishonest move. It can be a genuine concession. Yeah that I just didn't see that point. And actually, interestingly, you and I were having a conversation yesterday about Gary Lineker. Mm. And you made some interesting points that completely undermined stuff I'd been saying on TV for three days. I said, that's a fair point. Now, if we were doing that on TV, had we been on a panel and you'd done that, I wouldn't have disputed it. I would have said, yeah, that's a good point, Johnny Wade. And then moved somewhere else. Um, uh, yeah, uh, th gonna, thank I'm you for the concession. Um, <laughs> I, I, didn't think, I didn't think that was coming. But the, uh, here's what, I, in a way, to push it further, that I would go for. And, and do. That is somebody who was a brilliant debater. I mean, in a way, the sort of has the, had the reputation for debate that I think you now have, which, and the person I'm thinking of is Christopher Hitchens. And he was such a brilliant debater that those who heard him would have been persuaded 20 years ago, you mentioned it, to support the Iraq war. Yeah. But he was, he was brilliant, but he was also wrong. And he had all the skills that you're recommending. He won the argument, but it actually wasn't a good outcome. Yeah. And so what, I suppose, again, I'm saying that you're right, people can buy another book, but you've given your energies to a project that actually doesn't necessarily get us to good outcomes. It doesn't necessarily get us to good outcomes because it depends on how you use the tools. Mm. I'm not responsible for how people use the tools. I'm putting the tools out. And in fact, I would argue that it's because of 2003. Let's take Iraq as a good example. In 2003, the people who made the pro-war arguments, people like Christopher Hitchens, Tony Blair, obviously not George W. Bush, but more eloquent, they were eloquent people making the case. 
and the, was the anti-war side good enough? I mean, there's a separate debate about did the media platform them enough, etc. But it's an interesting argument because I, one of the reasons I wrote the book is not just because I have an abstract desire about winning, it's because I believe that the things I believe in are losing good. because okay. people are not making the case well enough. So I would argue that the, the, the bad guys or the people I disagree with that you're mentioning, they're already winning. They're already using some of these techniques. Mm. Trump is already a master of appealing to emotion. He's a master of ad hominem attack. He's a master of kind of uh, uh, you know, using humor in, a, in his own dark way. And I'm saying to people on the left, progressives, liberals, the Labour Party, the Democratic Party, you need to learn some of these things going back to Aristotle. You need to absorb some of these lessons about human beings and how they're persuaded. So yes, you can use them in a bad way, but uh, you know, I will just wash my hands of that and say it's not my problem. Yeah. Um, good. Let's have another, let's look at another bit. You mentioned there the, the, the uh, a def uh, a defect on the left. Many of the people you'd agree with is that they are often, they underestimate the importance of emotion in an argument. And you just said just there that Donald Trump is rather good at seeing yeah. the in, emotion. In a horribly cynical and dark way, but yes. And, and that actually it's one of the things, particularly in the United States, I think, where the left Democrats are often incredibly robotic and analytic and factual, while the right are much better on getting appealing to the gut rather than yeah. to the sort of adding machine in your head. Uh, I think you um, are, uh, are very aware of that. In, just before we play the clip, to you, is a debate um, an emotional exercise or an intellectual exercise most? I know you can say both, but I which one matters most? I will say both, but it's not about what matters most. It's about the idea of what is the most effective way of getting, so I say in the book, the best vehicle for logos, for rational argument, is pathos, is the emotional appeal. Emotion is what gets you through the door. It's what opens up the other person's mind. But once you're through the door, what do you do? That's when you deploy your facts and figures. So let's look at this clip then. This is from another, the same actually, yeah, I think, same. Intelligence Squared debate. This is Mediasan's opening speech. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I stand before you tonight to make the case for the motion. And as I do, a number of names and faces flash through my mind. People who are counting on me and on you tonight to speak for them in this debate, to give them a voice tonight with your votes. Lujain Al-Hathrul, for example, a young women's rights activist who was jailed in 2014 for trying to drive her car in Saudi Arabia. Upon her release from prison, she went to live in the UAE, where last March she was grabbed on the side of the freeway, put in cuffs, thrown on a private jet and taken back to Saudi Arabia against her will. Today, aged just 29 years old, she sits behind bars for the temerity of asking for women to have the right to drive. Lujain, according to her sister, as we speak tonight, is being held in solitary confinement, where she's been beaten, waterboarded, electrocuted, sexually harassed and threatened with rape and murder. You went on. I did go on. Um, but it's the important point was you went through this group of people. I think it culminated in Jamal Khashoggi, um, which was, uh, you were appealing there to the heart, but as you said, it's in order to open the door. Yeah, so I had, if you watch the whole speech, it's on YouTube. I had a whole bunch of arguments about why the West should cut ties with Saudi Arabia, which were about geopolitics, which were about the arms trade, which were about human rights abuses. But you can't open with his... Clause four of the UN Declaration on Human Rights, right? That is the problem with a lot of people, as we say, on the left, in the Labour Party, in the Democratic Party. It's always, let me convince you by giving you one more statistic, one more fact, one more figure, one more Pew poll, one more peer-reviewed paper. That's not how people get convinced. And I say in the book, 
opening remarks. You want to grab people's attention. You want to grab them here, not just here. And the best way to do that is to tell a story. Storytelling is the, the number one mechanism for persuasion, for convincing people, for connecting with people, so that the audience can identify with you, see something in common with you, bond with you, especially a personal story, either your own story or someone around you, or the story of someone they can identify with. So I told a bunch of real life stories for at least three to four minutes at the top of that speech, one after another, before I got to any kind of facts, figures, data, or even my actual argument. Yeah. Because I just want to get the audience in the right mood, I want them to understand what's at stake, I want them to feel something here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. Part two of this event will be available as our next episode. Subscribers can access all three episodes now, along with a bonus episode of Bright Sparks, where we hear from Mehdi on the creative ideas that make him tick. This event was produced by executive producer Hannah Kay, with editing by executive producer Rowan Slaney. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or on Twitter at Intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.